it's got to be about supply because if you if you provide support to demand and there's no supply, all that happens is it juices up rents and prices and no one's better off for it except for the homeowners who benefited from the higher prices. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode recorded before the holidays on December 12th and several days before the meeting where the Fed announced to change direction is with Mark Zandi, the chief economist for Moody's Analytics. This is our annual look forward with a global view on the economy and the real estate markets. Last year at this time, we had Mike VK from Eastdale Secured and Chris Hartung from Berkeley's Fisher Center for Real Estate on the show, talking about looking forward into what we expected to be a tough year for real estate investing, and it was, and now Mark looking forward into 2024. It's clear that we're headed into challenges in commercial real estate, with the acceptance of the repricing due to the normalization of interest rates after an extended period of unreal rates, and Mark will talk about that. But Mark's overall feeling of the economic tea leaves is giddy, a word you don't hear often these days, and which I'll riff on to take giddy to giddy up. To summarize Mark's view, quoting his recent tweet is, as 2023 comes to an end, it's increasingly clear that not only did the economy avoid a widely anticipated recession, but it was also a great year for the economy. Real GDP is on track to grow a heady 2.5%, unemployment has remained below 4%, and inflation has quickly receded. Indeed, giddy. And on the theme of giddy up, I truly believe for real estate companies that now is the time to A, hopefully take advantage of a bit of distress, and B, plan for your activities in the next cycle, even if that is 12 to 24 months away. See through the fog and be planful. As I tell my clients at CRG, you had a rough year last year, but as always, almost every company should be in a perpetual building and rebuilding exercise. And you want your team to at least make it to the playoffs, if not this year, then next year. What do you have to do to have a playoff-worthy or even a pennant-worthy team for the next cycle? It's time to build your business platform, which includes your best team, and plan strategy for how you're going to make it there and indeed have your company be a perennial contender going forward. How do you get there? What's the right team look like? Those are my favorite conversations with clients and the best of what we get to do at ZRG in Talent Advisory. I hope that you're enjoying the show. Today's episode with Mark is hopefully a valuable look forward. Our next episode, pardon the phrase, is WTF is happening in downtown San Francisco with two leaders in the San Francisco real estate community, Michael Covarubias and Cyrus Sanandaji who will try to unpack the realities of our market here in San Francisco that's been so much in the headlines. Please share this in your favorite episodes of Leading Voices with your friends and colleagues. To be precise, refer Leading Voices both to friends who you know listen to podcasts, those who don't listen to podcasts but should, maybe that's everybody, or folks you know with long drives, long hikes, or dog walks or bike rides. Podcasts are best consumed on the move. If you have a few minutes, please rate us on your podcast app. If you're not a subscriber, please do follow the show. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn and comment on the episode via my posts. If you have comments or questions on the show or want to learn more about how ZRG can help your organization and your human capital needs, 
feel free to email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did with Mark Zandi. And to everyone, good luck for 2024. It's going to be a very interesting year for sure. Welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. So Mark Zandi, Chief Economist for Moody's Economics, and I want you to introduce yourself and what it is that you do. But a lot of the conversation today is going to bounce between kind of popular economics and where the economy is at and what that means for the people who read the New York Times, like anybody or read the normal newspaper, as well as insiders in the commercial real estate business. And I I can't go very deep on economics because I don't understand it that well. But your view of where we're at and what it means and sifting through all of the noise we see is, to me, a fascinating subject. So I want to do that and then talk a lot about where real estate fits into all of these changes that we have going on right now. Sure. Sounds great. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me on, Matt. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thrilled to have you on the show. And you're one of the three or four other podcast hosts I've had on the show Ah. as well over time. Yeah, we have a, a my the funnest thing I do every week inside economics. It's just uh, me, a couple of my colleagues, uh, and uh, we, we'll have a guest every every other show, every other podcast, and I just we just chat about the economics. So you got to be a little nerdy to like it, but I, Matt, I sense you're you're kind of on the nerdy side, so you'll you'll probably like it. Slightly nerdy. I've listened to a bunch of them over the years. And then I listened to three of them on a bike ride the other day and oh, just cool. loved it. Cause I was trying to think through what we would be talking about. Right. Right. But it, it's interesting because you stretch out at the beginning as we're doing right now, just kind of how are you doing? What's going on? And then you dive into all kinds of really geeky, nerdy discussion topics. <laughs> a lot of CRE stuff, right? Commercial real estate. We had Chris Mayer, the uh, professor uh, at Columbia, the uh, you know stellar real estate researcher and um an academician and he and actually not that's not fair because he also runs a reverse mortgage company now i didn't know that uh, right. but uh so he's he's really uh practicing as well as uh trying to understand the theory so we have a lot of cre folks on the on the podcast right i listened to the recent podcast with the head of the federal home loan bank san francisco oh yeah Teresa brazemore she's great she I was really, great I really like her yeah and then also the last one that you had on, I'm going to get the word wrong, basic income in Denver. Yeah, yeah, universal basic income, guaranteed income. This uh, fellow, Mark Donovan, who uh, made all his money selling te- Tesla stock. He made a fortune. Right. He, he had his own company. He's a, you know, an entrepreneur. And then he put all that cash into Tesla. And of course, that took off. And now he's using that to finance the Denver Basic Income Project, which is a, an effort to see how basic income guaranteed income works and you know what are the problems what are the uh, benefits of that and so very interesting uh, conversation with him yeah for sure yeah it was great hopefully our listeners will click through to your podcast to hear those conversations so talk about yourself introduce yourself if you will in your perch at moody's economics and then we'll talk about a lot of things here or moody's analytics sorry yeah i'm the uh, chief economist of moody's analytics moody's analytics is a uh division of the Moody's Corp. The other part of it is the rating agency, obviously. Uh, and I joined Moody's Analytics, almost, hard to believe, almost 20 years ago. I sold my company. I had an economic consulting firm that I sold to Moody's back right before the financial crisis uh, hit. And uh, that firm was pretty good size, small business, 80, 85 employees when I sold it. 
So, and I started the company with my brother and a good friend uh, in 1990. Uh, so I've been an entrepreneur, you know, startup, uh, small business person, and now a part of a large multinational organization. So I've seen American business from lots of different angles. And uh, we provide uh, economic data, analysis, analytics, forecasts, scenarios to large, generally large businesses of non-financial corps, financial institutions, big banks globally, governments, uh, both at the federal level, state and local, but a lot of use cases for our information and data and uh, very much enjoyed being part of the success of uh, Moody's Analytics. It's been uh, you know, a real good ride for sure. Yeah. And how much of it is ongoing reporting that you do and you track and how much are bespoke projects for companies to look at specific issues? Very little of it's bespoke. There's some like um, some large banks as part of their capital planning process has to do kind of their own scenarios, consider the impact on the bank of different alternative scenarios and will help them develop those scenarios and figure out what the economic credit impacts of that are. That's bespoke, sort of. I mean, there's a lot of commonality across those different projects, but most of it is information that uh, is used widely by our clients. And it's a it's a good business. It's a subscription business. It's a renewable business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not like we run consulting treadmill. It's, um, you know, we are, we have longstanding clients have been with me for 30 years, really, in mm-hmm. many cases. Uh, so um, we, we've grown up with them. And uh, uh, so the, uh, the, the business is a very stable business. It allows us to do a lot of interesting research uh, in, in work. You know, we do a lot of work trying to understand the impact the macroeconomic consequences of different kinds of policy steps, both fiscal policy, tax po- spending policy, and of course, monetary policy as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're doing this podcast mid-December 2023. Mm-hmm. This will be released as our first episode of 2024. So what I want to think about with you is what the heck's going on, what the heck to expect, what the heck to expect right now but also what to expect over three, four years in our industry. So, okay. And then I that listened like to fun. your long podcast the other day about the employment report, and you are giddy. That and giddy's the word. Yep. Giddy, mm-hmm. like giddy up. No, but you're 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 giddy about the jobs report. Are you giddy about the economy? And what does the jobs report mean for the economy? Harder, soft landing, interest rates. And we'll talk about the election, too, because that matters a little bit yeah, to me. Yeah, so. sure. Yeah. Well, the, the job numbers this is for the month of November that came out last week, they were great. Uh, you know, usually I, I've looked at a lot of jobs reports over that 30, 35-year period as a professional economist. And always there's – it's it's not a one-sided report. You know, it's it's either – there's a, either if it's a bad report, there's always a silver line. This is a silver lining. If it's if it's a good report, there's always a blemish. Mm-hmm. This was a good report with no blemishes. I mean, that's rare. Uh, it was all good, uh, and it shows the economy is uh, doing well, uh, producing a lot of jobs. Um, unemployment is very low, below four percent. It's been rock solid, below four percent for two years now. Uh, people are uh, participation rates are up. Wage growth is moderating, so fading concern with regard to what that means for inflation, but stronger than the rate of inflation. So people's real wages after inflation wages uh, are rising, their purchasing power is improving. Uh, So that's why I feel so good about that report. I mean, it kind of really crystallized, uh, you know, uh, why the economy 
is very likely going to avoid a recession in the near future, certainly in 2024, and therefore in economist nomenclature, soft land. I don't think soft landing really is a great way to describe what's going to play out in 24. I'm sure there's going to be points in time where we're going to be uncomfortable about how things are going. There's a lot going on, including the election. So soft landing feels a little, I don't know, Pollyannish, but but that's what economists are using to describe right. a world with no recession. So yeah, soft landing. And it's interesting you think about it because what a different way to look at what you just said, I think, is that, okay, soft landing, that's really cool. We did this, but there's a lot of winners and losers in different subsectors through how that soft landing occurs. So different segments of the economy will feel differently or different human beings will feel very differently about that overall theme, which feels great, but not to everybody. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like in the middle of the distribution, right? There's a yeah. distribution, some doing better, some doing worse. I mean, you can see that if you look at Americans across the income distribution, right? So folks in the top third of the income distribution probably arguably never been better, right? I mean, they're employed, wage growth is strong, they have a lot of cash in the bank that they saved up during the pandemic that they haven't spent. If they have any debt, they've locked in, you know, the previously record low interest rates, the stock prices are up, housing values are up, they're a lot wealthier than they were when the pandemic hit. You know, they're in really good shape. The middle third, they're doing okay. I mean, I you know, I think uh, broadly speaking, they're kind of uh, hanging in there. I mean, they, they've got jobs, wage growth is stronger than inflation. They've got some excess saving built up during the pandemic. They're likely to own a home. And of course their home is worth a lot more. Uh, they locked in too, like everybody else. So they're, they're doing, they're doing fine. They're doing okay. Of course, if you're in the bottom third, that's where the struggles are. Uh, and uh, you know, those, those folks uh, at this point, they have a job, which is great. And unemployment is low. Their wage growth has been, pretty good, it, you know, it's greater than the rate of inflation, but they don't have any excess saving. If they did, they blew through that during the period of high inflation a year or two ago. And they don't own, probably don't own their own home. They're paying more on rent. And they're the folks that are getting nailed by the higher prices that we're paying for lots of different stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, food in particular, rent, you know, that's the staples are much more expensive than they were a few years ago. And I think that's really hurting that group. They turned to their car credit cards and consumer finance loans and uh, had borrowed more. So their debt burdens are starting to rise given the strong borrowing and the higher interest rates. So the bottom third, not, you know, they're under a lot of pressure. Middle group, again, kind of hanging in there, doing doing fine. Top group, things are great. Yeah, no, no problem at all. Yeah. So I, I keep talking about podcasts. So I'm, I listen to The Daily every other day. Mm -hmm. There were mm -hmm. two episodes a couple weeks ago. You were quoted on one or maybe both of them. One was called the good vibes around a, I'm sorry, the bad vibes around a good economy. Mm. And then the other was called the new math around rent to own. Mm -hmm. But the whole podcast, the, the first one talked a lot about why the American population does not feel good, even though mm -hmm. what you just said is actually giddy. Mm -hmm. And maybe they're just interviewing the bottom third of those people but I don't think that's the case. I think it doesn't feel as good as it is. People should maybe be giddy on a relative basis. What what explains that? I, I think it is the higher prices, uh, which, by the way, I the blame for it, I think, is largely the pandemic and the Russian war. We could talk about that. But, you know, that drove up prices across the board uh, from rents to gas to food to pretty much everything we plunk dollars down to buy. 
And I think people are having a hard time adjusting to that. Most Americans have never seen high inflation. I have, uh, you, I know you have yeah. in the seventies and eighties, but most Americans have not. So this is something that really stings and it's a sting they've never felt before. And they're having a hard time adjusting to it. It just doesn't feel very good. I also think there's a kind of a political overlay. I mean, if you look at the sentiment surveys, the one that you know economists look at uh, called the University of Michigan survey, which has been around for years, decades, you know, they ask the respondents, are you a Democrat, Republican, or independent? And you can see the responses to the sentiment survey about how the economy is doing are very much a function of, you know, who's the president, what party they are in, and what your party is. So when Trump was president, Republicans felt, they felt giddy, much better than the Democrats. And now with Biden as president, Democrats feel a lot better than the Republicans. So I think that kind of pervades a lot of the sentiment and thinking. Uh, and in fact, if you look at other sentiment surveys, like the conference board survey, I know this is a little geeky, but you oh, might God. be interested. The conference board survey does not ask that question about party affiliation. And that survey showing sentiment is pretty close to its long run average. It's not great. It's not bad. It's just, it's just pedestrian about average. So I think what happens is if people kind of think about things through the prism of their kind of political perspective, that's when things go really off the rails in terms of people's perceptions about what's going on. There's other other things going on here. You know, survey responses are down. Who's responding is changing. There's a lot of survey fatigue. People are on trust, don't trust the surveys. So I, I think they're becoming less and less reliable. But broadly, I think, uh, you know, the most fundamental reason for the angst is uh, uh, I'm paying more for it. You know, I taught at Wharton yesterday. Wharton's the business school at Penn. That's my alma mater. I went and I taught a course there yesterday. And talking with the kids, I asked, you know, how are you feeling about the economy? I want to know. One of the kids said, I I don't feel that great. I go, and they're business school kids, so they have a pretty good grip on why they don't feel good about the economy. Guy said, I'm paying more for stuff. And I go, well, what in particular? Uh, what really bugged him was ramen noodles. The price of ramen, I didn't know this. The price of ramen noodles were way up. That's really a problem for for this fella, and why he's he's not happy. Well, so, he's going I, to Wharton, so luckily he's going to be having fresh ramen soon instead of <laughs> right. the dried ramen delivered. You know, delivered from wherever. I don't know. Yeah. So, well, yeah. it, it's interesting you say the prism of political perspective because I have that prism, and for me, I'm depressed that people are depressed. I feel somewhat <laughs> giddy because I'm in that That's upper tier. That's great. That's great. But their depression upsets me because I can't get it. I don't know what to do with it. Uh, and it may yeah. affect the election, which I really care about. We all do. Yeah. And uncertain. And I want to come to the word uncertainty in a minute because that's a different subject. But yeah. it is fascinating that your business has to deal with that prism through which people look at the thing that you know to be actually truth, not fake news, but truth. Well, the, but the, you know, the key thing in terms of the economy is people are saying they don't feel well, but it doesn't stop them from spending. People are still spending. Mm-hmm. I mean, consumer spending is rock solid. It's exactly what you'd want it to see. After inflation, real consumer spending growth is 2%, pretty much on the nose, and it's been there for you know at least a year, maybe coming on two. And that's exactly the growth you want. That's enough to keep the economy moving forward, no recession. But not so fat, no, not so strong that it would cr- be, push the economy to grow so fast that it would fan inflation. So, consumers, households could be saying, "I don't feel great." You know, I think the economy stinks, but that's not affecting what they're doing. Uh, the, and again, that 
kind of belies, you know, kind of the how how much weight I would put on those sentiment readings and what people are saying and how about how they feel. I'm not sure it means as much as we think it does. Fair deal. So let's drill down into this word uncertainty or the word risk. And I want to think about the risk to the economy, but let's stick for a minute with the consumer because I think maybe some of the reason that people don't feel giddy is that they feel insecure that the future feels more uncertain, I think, than it ever has before, just in the way of the world, either politics or war or AI or climate. Kids don't want to have babies. Well, there's a lot of geopolitical threats uh, that are front and center, Israel, Hamas, war, uh, Russian war with Ukraine, the tensions between the U.S. and uh, China, and that, you know, there's all other kinds of flashpoints, North Korea, Iran, you know, right. can go on and on and on. I don't think, my sense is I that the, the, the geopolitical dynamics are no uh, more risky or less risky than they have been in times past. I don't sense that these things are any bigger deals than all mm-hmm. the other things we've dealt with all the years. I don't, I don't know when you were a kid, but when I was a kid in elementary school, we'd practice uh, getting under our desk if there was going to be a nuclear bomb. Now, come right. on, put that in this, anything we're experiencing today in the context of that, I'm going under the desk because a nuclear bomb is going to strike. So we've been dealing with these geopolitical issues from the time immemorial, and I don't really think what we're experiencing now is any different than that. Now, having said that, our perceptions may be different because uh, you know the way we're consuming those geopolitical threats is different, you know, through social media, through fragmented media, other, you know, traditional forms of media. And it becomes like an echo chamber. You know, if you, you're listening to TikTok or right. Facebook or Twitter or, you know, even uh, the kind of traditional media, CNN and Fox, you listen into any of that and, you know, you can get depressed pretty fast uh, just, you know, listening to that. So I, I don't know that the reality of what's going on is any more dangerous than what we've been experiencing in the past, but certainly our perception of it has has shifted, I think, because of mm-hmm. what's gone on with regard to the way we are able to consume that information. But I should I should preface everything I'm saying so people know this. I talk about forecast many things. Mm-hmm. Some things I'm very confident in, some things not so much. If I told you inflation is going to be back to the Federal Reserve's target by the end of next year, I'm very confident in that. If we talk about what's driving fertility rates, not so much. (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) Okay, let's move on and let's talk about how what what the risks to the soft landing are that may make it not a soft landing and where commercial real estate fits in with that. You sent me a paper some weeks ago, the real estate doom loop, I think. We're going to talk about two doom loops because there's real estate doom loop and people have talked a lot about San Francisco doom loop, and you've written another paper on San Francisco recently and office to resi conversions. But talk about what the risks to this are in particular. Let's drill into commercial real estate. Yeah, there's obviously a lot of risks, uh, both downside. And I'll have to say, encouragingly, for the first time in a long time, there is some upside risk. Things could actually turn out better than I'm, I'm saying. No, I'm saying no recession, soft landing, but could be you know awkward, at t- uncomfortable at times could turn out to be better than that. I mean, 2023 actually turned out much, much better 
Certainly then the pessimists back a year ago were calling for a recession, not me, but many other economists were calling for a recession. They were dead wrong. But even I was overly pessimistic. Growth turned out to be much better, much stronger. Unemployment remained lower for much is much lower than I expected. Inflation has come in much more quickly. So things could turn out to be better. But having said that, I do think the risks are predominantly the downside. And I'm not going to go into any detail, but I do think, you know, there's the potential the Fed could make a mistake. I always worry about oil prices. You know, they're down now, but they can easily go back up and nothing does more damage to the economy more quickly than higher oil prices. The financial system more broadly feels fragile to me. The operating environment to be a bank or a non-bank financial institution is pretty intrepid. You know, uh, net interest margins are under pressure because of the shape of the yield curve. I won't explain that unless you want to go down that path. Loan growth is weak because of tightening and underwriting. Uh, credit quality is eroding. Uh, even if it's just normalizing, it's eroding. And the regulatory environment is turned you know, more difficult. I mean, this is no comment on whether the, re the increased regulation is good or bad. It's simply the statement that the cost of regulation is up. So you add all that up, <clears throat> the system is under, banking system and the rest of the financial system is under a lot of pressure and something could break just like it did back in March, you know, when Silicon Valley Bank broke. Right. And, uh, I don't, I don't, I, there's something I could, we can talk about what, could that could that be? But I don't know for sure. But it feels like all the fodder for some kind of you know event in the financial system are coming into play. So we need to be aware of that. But in that context, this CRE, commercial real estate, is part of that. You know the problems that the financial system faces, and commercial real estate obviously is under a lot of pressure because of the fundamentals. Uh, you know, demand is under uh, you know significant pressure. People are just going to be demanding less space particularly in the office market, that seems to be the poster child for CRE's problems. You know, remote work is, in my view, here to stay, and it's going to affect the demand for, you know, space going forward. And we have too much space. We have, a, you know, a lot of vacancies are up, uh, rents are flat to down, prices are weakening. So far, it hasn't led to a whole lot of default, which would perhaps exacerbate the price declines. You know, if you get default, then you get distressed sales, and that puts downward pressure on price. We're getting some defaults, but nothing yet that's really, you know, all the alarm bells are going off. But it, it could happen. Uh, and if it does, and we see bigger price declines, more defaults, the, the so, some of the uh, lenders, creditors in, in the banking system and non-bank part of the system that are extending credit into the CRE space start to struggle and, and choke on that, then you can kind of now start constructing a, a dark scenario where these things become self-negatively reinforcing and you go into, you know, a pretty deep recession. I, I don't, I, that's not my baseline. You know, that's not kind of the most likely scenario, but it's definitely a scenario, a downside scenario and a risk that we need to to contemplate. Mm -hmm. And I want to come back to that because I want to drill down. Are there other, there are other major risks that could affect the, the soft landing geopolitical? What other, oh, sure. You know, so uh, we talked about the geopolitical hotspots could boil over. Uh, I talked about oil prices. I mean, if the Israel-Hamas war were to, bleed over into Iran and, and uh, disrupt 3 million barrels a day they produce and the million and a half barrels they export, that'd be a big problem, you know, pretty fast because uh, oil prices would jump and that would really, as I said earlier, do a lot of damage. I do worry about the election. Uh, I think this is going to be uh, very uncomfortable. In all likelihood, it's going to be very close and reasonable probability is going to be contested. And if, if it's close and contested, then one can easily see you know, there might be social strife. And once that happens, you know, hard to know how that plays out, but it, none of it's good. And that could be 
a, you know, a pretty significant hit to your, your psyche and the collective psyche. And, you know, that, that could be the fodder for, you know, problems in financial markets as investors grow nervous and then ultimately be a problem for the broader economy. So I, I do think that's, you know, that's not at the top of the list of my concerns, but it's definitely on the list. It, it'll be an interesting year. Oh, yeah. We're going to live yeah, in interesting you know, times. You know, I always think the, the the election before me is the most important in my lifetime, but I, I this one feels pretty important to me. Yeah, sure does. <laughs> With each passing day, it feels more and more important. Well, and it's more and more noise because no one's happy. Yeah. Yeah, no one's happy. We've said this before, right? You, I remember almost every election in the past 20 years, it's like, oh, gosh, this is like two choices I don't want. But yeah. in particular, <laughs> that's the theme at the moment. Um let's let's move on from that and let's go back to the commercial real estate and there aren't the level of write downs yet but they haven't been the level of maturities hitting cuz there's a wall of maturities next year or the year after i believe mm-hmm. and then maybe you're also talking but there's been write downs if not defaults and maybe you're talking commercial bank not in the private banking side of the world and you've also said in your paper a poster child might be office, but multifamily's pretty impacted, maybe in large part because of a wall of new product coming online. So talk about all of that for my industry. Yeah, well, there is a, a lot of debt coming due over the course of the next few years. Uh, if you do the arithmetic over the next two to three years, it's going to be somewhere between a trillion and a trillion and a half in CRE de- debt all in that's going to need to be rolled over, you know, refinanced. And the the reasonable worry is that when it comes up, when it comes due and it has to be rolled over into another loan, interest rates are still high, prices are down, meaning there's less or no equity in the property and rents are weak. It's not covering expense, net operating income is negative. You know, if that's the case, that's the, that's the fodder for, you know, a default. Uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, they just, there's just, there's just no terms under which that loan can the loan the existing loan can be rolled over into a new one, and that's that's a default, and that's that's just potentially a distress sale, and that puts downward pressure on price, and so you can certainly construct that scenario, and I think that is a risk. I will say that the amount of debt coming due feels manageable to me. It's not like you've got a spike in the amount of debt that needs that's coming due in each year. It's kind of a you know three four hundred five hundred billion dollars a year uh, you know going out in, into the future. So it's not like we've got this massive tsunami of debt coming at us. It's just a kind of a, a series of waves that are coming at us that we can I think we can digest. The other thing is that a lot of the debt, half, about half that debt, I'm rounding obviously, but half the debt is in the banking system, half is in the non-bank part of the system. So it is the debt is dispersed uh, throughout the system. It's not concentrated in one place. And in the banking system, it's it's not in the big banks. The large, systemically important banks, their exposure is actually pretty small. If you add up all their CRE exposure through loans, through securities like CMBS, or even through CNI loans, commercial industrial loans to real estate companies like REITs, you know, for the big guys, it's maybe five, ten percent of their assets outstanding. So no big deal. And of course, they they uh, are engaged in annual stress tests for capital planning that assumes a 40% decline uh, peak to trough in all CRE prices, which would mean that, you know, office would prices would be down 60, 70, 80%, something like that, some really big number. 
So it feels like the big guys are not going to be a problem. Smaller guys, you know, with a billion or two, 10 billion, 15 billion in assets might see some failure there, but these are small institutions. They shouldn't be a problem. You can construct scenarios where they do because there's a lot of fragility around people's thinking about the banking system that could ignite another deposit run like we experienced back in March when SVB failed. But that, you know, that's, that's a, that's a downside scenario with a lower probability. So it's on the tail of, it's on the tail of the distribution of possible outcomes. It's not the most likely scenario, but it's certainly a scenario. The other thing I'd point out again, office is the poster child of the problems. And that's even an even smaller share of the, of the amount of debt coming outstanding. And the, in office, it's really the properties that are sitting in, you know, kind of BC quality properties sitting in, you know, big urban centers. It's not all office, you know, so right. you kind of think about all those things that you got it up. You say, I think we're going to be able to navigate through one last comment and I'll stop. You mentioned multifamily. Multifamily's problem isn't so much demand, it's supply. You know, on the, on the office side, it's it's demand for space. In the multifamily area, there's just a boatload of supply coming because that got all bottled up during the pandemic, supply chain issues, labor market issues. Those things are getting, have gotten to iron out. So all that, there's a million multifamily units in the pipeline going to completion, a record number. Just for context, in a good year, we put up 500,000, you know, multifamily units. That's two years worth of supply in the pipeline coming dead ahead. So vacancy rates are going to rise. And, and again, these are high-end, you know, multifamily towers sitting in the big urban centers. You know, vacancies are going to rise. Rents are going to be under pressure. And we are going to see, we've already seen prices there fall even more than in office based on actual transactions. And so that that that's the other area where we'll see some problem. The other property types, you know, the world isn't great, but it's not, it's not, it's not overly dark, you know, retail, industrial, hotels, they should navigate through. Uh, we'll see some, some price declines in all likelihood, but they should be modest in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. So lots of talk, lots of things to talk about in there. Um, one is, I look at the difference between the macro view. Is it a risk to the economy? Is it a risk to the soft landing? And then I look at the micro view, which is, oh my God, there's opportunity here because properties will trade and they will trade at a discount, at least a discount to the high prices. We were at a peak of pricing right before uh, COVID or right before all this. And now we're down in the multifamily business, 17, 18, 20%. And so the opportunity is still going to be there. The systemic risk might be minimal. The banks will survive, but they will have to trade at lower. People will be losing value and it's going to be meaningful. And I assume that's just true. I know that's true. So, yeah, no, that's, I mean, I think uh, prices are going to fall. I mean, in particularly multifamily is a good case in point because it got really juiced, right? Right. Prices really got juiced. Cap rates got very low extraordinarily low by historical standards. And we're just seeing some normalization and rates are up a lot. So that would uh, argue that values are going to be lower. So when all said and done in my world of no recession, I expect, you know, office property prices to be down 25, 30% from the peak. I expect multifamily to be down 20, 25%. I expect, you know, retail industrial to be down, you know, five, 10% and in hotel low single digit kind of a peak to trough decline in price. And so, you know, that's going to take time time to actually manifest because people are trying to figure out what's real value and they're holding on until they're actually forced to make a transaction and transaction volumes are very low at the current point in time. 
So it's hard to get price discovery. So yep. they're you know kind of sorting this all out. No one knows where interest rates are going to settle, and they may come back in a little bit in time to kind of help out some of these these uh, uh, property owners. So I think it's just going to take a little bit of time. But yes, two three years down the road, those are the kind of price declines I would expect, and ultimately that does sow the seeds for its own recovery. There's value there, and you'll see you know money come flowing back in. Yeah, money will flow quickly once we know what the number is yeah, when is. once interest rates settle and then therefore yeah. cap rates settle and pricing happens. So you raise the issue of rates. So of course what everyone wants to know is your prediction on rates. Where do they settle? When do they settle? And then also if it comes down a little bit, then that will help the solutions here because there's more of a solution set to the refis if rates are more affordable. Yeah, well, the, I'll talk about the federal funds rate, the short-term interest rate the Fed controls, and then I'll talk about long-term rates, the 10-year Treasury yield as the benchmark. On the funds rate, we're at five and a quarter, five and a half percent. That's the peak, I think, in this cycle. I think the Fed will start cutting rates slowly, second half of next year, once it's clear that Zandi's forecast about inflation is coming to pass and mm-hmm. we're going to be by back target by this time next year. I don't think they cut until that's obvious, and it probably won't be until summer next year. And then they'll cut rates very slowly, at least for a while. I mean, I don't think they really are interested in making big moves on interest rates in the lead up to the election because they don't want to get politicized, I don't think, uh, mm-hmm. be my guess, all else being equal. But they, they'll get the fund rate back down to the so-called equilibrium rate, R star, that rate consistent with Fed policy, neither supporting or restraining growth. That I it's probably around 3%. So they'll probably get there, you know, sometime in the end of 25 going into 26. So and that 3% right compares to what's five and a quarter now? Yeah, okay. exactly. And then on the 10 year, I think we're pretty close to where it's going to be in the long run. It should be 4% ish, you know, four, four and a quarter, maybe size four and a half. That you know, in the long run, abstracting from the, the vagaries of the business cycle, the 10 year yield should roughly equal the nominal potential growth rate of the economy. The 10-year yield is the cost of capital, the nominal potential growth of the economy is the return. In the long run, they should be equal to each other. So 4%-ish. So I think we're, we're pretty close to where we need to be on the on the 10-year treasury yield. And I think that's what people should pencil in when they're kind of doing their uh, forecast here and, and trying to f- figure out where uh, you know prices should be. Uh-huh. But that's th- still not available if I'm refinancing one of those. No. We're way yeah, off that now. Way off that spreads are still way, you know, that 10 year yield is the risk free rate. Yep. So it's not accounting for the rate that I face if I'm trying to refinance that, you know, that CRE loan at this point in uh-huh. time. So then when we talked about these maturities coming with the price drops that you've said, if the rates are going to come down to that 4% range after a year and a half, at the time at which many of those maturities are happening, that's going to help the outcome a lot in terms of being able to refi it should not take it such the loss yeah that should uh and i think that's part of what's in people's minds that they're kind of trying to hold on until you know rates come in and the other good thing is i do think uh regulators are suggesting to banks certainly implicitly but almost in many respects explicitly to work with with uh, potential uh, uh, property own- with prop- uh, potential borrowers, property owners, they do- I don't think it's in the best interest of anyone to force owners to sell at distressed prices because that just creates more problems for everybody else. So I think it's kind of the extend and pretend strategy that a regulator would never call it that, but mm-hmm. that's kind of sort of what's going on, and that's tried and true. That's kind of the approach taken in all 
kind of real estate cycles. You just don't want people to have to be forced in a position that, you know, uh, that would exacerbate the kind of conditions for everybody else. And so I think that also will play a role here in allowing, you know, this to work out in a more reasonable, graceful way. It's a place, stick with national banking system for a minute. At the time that all that gets to the end game, will the requirement from the regulators be that banks have a lower percentage of their book in commercial real estate? Is that something that's shifting over the long term anyhow? I think uh, de facto in that I don't think they're going to say, you know, here's here's the threshold. What they're going to do, though, is going to raise the cost of making CRE loans. So they might, we'll see what the next stress test scenario looks like. That's going to come out in February, probably. The CCAR, so-called CCAR stress scenario, severity adverse scenario. I said it was down 40% peak to trough, the, the, the CRE price index that they use. Let's see what they do this time. They could put it at 50 or 55% mm-hmm. down. And if they do that, what they're effectively saying is you got to hold more capital against those loans. And if you're holding more capital, you got to raise the interest rate and the costs. And if that you do that, then you're going to have a, you know, you're going to reduce the share of that uh, asset in your in your book in your portfolio. So they 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 can engineer kind of that reduction in exposure to CRE, but they'll they won't do it directly. They'll do it through mm-hmm. you, know, you know capital planning. And if that's all done. Do we now have the technologies and the non-bank system to be able to handle the financial needs of the CRE market between CMBS, private banks, non-bank banks, the rest of the system, private equity? Does it does it is it now resilient to work and to make up for that slack? I think there's plenty of capital at a price, right? So. You know, I think prices have to come down. <laughs> so right. Once prices come down, interest rates moderate. The economy looks like it's on the other side of whatever it is we're just struggling with here. You know, I think uh, you know money will flow. There's different sources of capital coming from different places. Uh, I think uh, you know CRE is still a very attractive asset class for lots of different reasons. You know, given its returns and given its diversification in a portfolio. Of, of assets. So there's lots of reasons why you want to hold CRE and you have lots of different ways of holding it, holding uh, that ownership. So, you know, I, I, I think, uh, uh, I, I think we, you will see the capital when, when the prices are low enough that it, you know, makes sense. And that, that goes back to what I expect prices to come down. If we get down to those kind of, get those kind of price declines at the interest rates I just expressed, I think you'll have plenty of capital there to support that. Uh-huh. And switching subjects, but still in the real estate world, I don't talk a lot about single family. You think a lot mm-hmm. about single family because this is part of your background and you're on the board of PMI, big mortgage insurer. How- GIC. GIC, sorry. Uh-oh. Yeah. No, that's okay. okay. PMI, that's okay. PMI is private mortgage insurer. We're all PMIs, uh, but I am MGIC. Yeah. Okay. I think I just called you Kleenex or something. <laughs> you did. You okay. did. You called me Kleenex. I did the generic. Which is fine. You can call me Kleenex. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fair deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so talk about single family and does that, when do those rates come back down into the place that people could start selling their homes again and make economic decisions that way? And what will the new normal be? Yeah, so the 30-year fixed is at 7%-ish. It, it got as high as 8 not too long ago. We're down to 7 I do think we need to get south of 6 uh, before life really comes uh, back into the market. Affordability gets to a place where we can get some real you know, uh, activity. Uh, that probably will, will take another year or two to get down there. I mean, 
the the thirty year fix is a, a function of the ten year treasury yield. I think that's settling where it needs to, but that spread between the fixed mortgage rate and the ten year yield is very wide, and it's wide uh, be, uh, largely because of the compensation that investors and in mortgage securities are demanding in terms of a higher yield to compensate for their prepayment risk, the risk that they're going to get prepaid. Because right. everyone has a sense that rates are going to come down and they, you know, if they do, then they could get bought out of that mortgage security sooner than they would, would like. They need to be compensated for that. And that prepayment risk is a function of lots of things, including that expectation I just articulated, but it's also a function of the volatility of interest rates. And because uh, it's an option and the value of the option is a, is a function of volatility, market's highly volatile and it's going to remain that way until it's clear the Fed's going to start lowering interest rates. Once the Fed starts lowering rates and, the, and we have a clear path to lower Fed funds rate, I do think volatility will moderate and then ultimately the, that spread will come in and will settle in just south of 6% on a 30-year fix. And, and and I think you, if I were a buyer, that's kind of what I would expect going forward. Fair deal. And if you think about our system... And 30-year fixed, I don't know what percentage of people get 30-year fixed versus something 90. else. 90%. 90%. Yeah. It's up, I'm, it may even be 95. I mean, it was, it's come up a little bit, the arm share, the adjustable rate share, but it's still mostly long-term fixed rate debt. Yeah. It's interesting is, is and we're one of the few countries with a 30-year fixed loan. Very few. Denmark, I think France has some, but, you know, we're, we're unique. Our mortgage finance system is very unique in that regard. So two or three questions about that. Is there a stable arm? Maybe it's a 15-year arm. I once got one of those, I think, because I never stay in a house for very long. Look, I have a 30-year fixed here in Sonoma, so it's great. I'm lucky. Yeah, yeah. Two months before the rates popped up, Citibank sent me a note that if you sign on the dotted line, we're going to reduce your mortgage rate by half a point or something. It's like- Wow, cool. Yeah, 300 bucks. Like, you don't have to do anything else. You didn't have to go to a notary or... That's cool. Yeah, I was lucky. So is there a product that matches more what people's normal lifespan in a house is? That's question one. And question two, what happens to the GSEs in the next cycle? Do they privatize or go? do they go get out of conservatorship? Any comments on that? On the mortgage, the average duration, the average length of time people are staying in their home is now about 10 years. So Mm. you're... You may be a little unusual in that regard, and that's extending out. So the thirty-year, you know, isn't too far off from what most people are doing. So it probably, you know, fits. You know, uh, we're getting older, we're moving less, and uh, people are, you know, renting more than their properties rather than selling their properties. So the the duration of these these properties of these mortgages are, you know, more consistent with the length of time people are staying in them. On Fannie Freddie, you know, I don't think we'll see privatization of any kind ever uh because why what problem are we solving by doing so i mean Mm -hmm. the system is working very well uh fannie and freddie are doing their job everyone in the mortgage housing ecosphere is i think pretty happy with the way things are going there was some concern that fannie and freddie and conservatorship for a long time would mean that the quality of the service that they provide to all the participants in the mortgage and housing markets would falter, that they become more ossified because they're under government conservatorship. I have no sense of that. They remain, you know, very active in, yep. in trying to improve the products and services that they provide. So what problem are we exactly solving? And, you know, even if you felt like a privatized Fannie and Freddie was a 
better place to be than Fannie and Freddie in conservatorship. Think about the pain and suffering that's going to be involved from getting from here to there. It's going to be painful. And it's just going to be create so much uncertainty and volatility and upend the securities markets, the CR credit risk transfer market, the MBS market, the mortgage securities market. So I just don't, I don't, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Now, maybe some, you know, politically driven decision-making might, you know, push us in that direction, but it would be based on politics, not economics. There's, I don't, I don't see the economics here working out for any, any kind of privatization that has been talked about up to this point in time. Yeah, it's interesting. The word conservatorship suggests something that's temporary versus something that's permanent. And maybe they call conservatorship just regulation and step out of it and say, okay, we solved the problem. Well, I mean, I think ideally what you would do is you would turn them into government corps because if you did, then you'd actually lower their costs and mortgage rates could come in a little bit. Because right now the securities, the Fannie and Freddie securities they're issuing are not at treasury yields because they, they're in conservatorship. They're not full faith and credit, right? They're not part of the federal government. They're, their securities are trading at a disadvantage against Gini securities, for example, which are FHA loans that are full faith and credit. So, you know, logic would say, let's just codify the, the kind of where we are today, take the conservatorship, turn it in, into government corps. And by the way, Fannie Mae was a government corp from its inception till you know, the 70s. And it worked out just fine. I mean, that, we should just go back to the future, which worked out just great. And uh, I think we, then we get a, we get you know maybe 10, 15 basis points off mortgage yields by doing so. So I, I would do that. And there's other some other things, other tweaks you could make to make it work better, make it sure that you could codify responsiveness in the system. But you know, I, actually, I've written a lot about this. If you're interested, um, you know, you could Google Zandy and. In the GSE reform, and you'll, you'll find um, you know a, lot, a number of articles, uh, papers uh, uh, taking that position about uh, uh, turning the uh, uh, Fannie and Freddie into government cons- uh, government corporations. Totally makes sense. I I was at Freddie's headquarters last week in in DC, and they're there. <laughs> they're not yeah. going anywhere, and they shouldn't yeah. go anywhere. And it's a yeah. big part of our system. So yep. I w- want to talk about like three or four topics, couple minutes each, to think about sure. this. You've talked about office and also in your one of your papers, you talked about diminished urban centers being one of the risk areas. Mm-hmm. So office, work from home, diminished urban areas, they're all one theme. Just mm-hmm. talk about that. Well, yeah, I mean, most of the difficulty in the CRE market are in large urban centers. I mean, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, you know, uh, going across the country, kind of poster childs. And, you know, they're, they're, the remote work has really hollowed out kind of the office uh, market. And then if you don't have folks coming into the downtown for work, then that affects retail, affects uh, hotels because you might have less business travel. You just have less activity in the downtown areas. It affects property tax revenue uh, because uh, property prices are down. So cities then have trouble finding the revenue they need to do basic stuff, uh, security, taking care of the homelessness, the home, uh, you know, doing uh, trash collection, those kinds of things. And transit. And then that transit, yeah. And then that, that exacerbates the outflows of people. More people, if I'm going to, I don't want to be dis- in a downtown area where I'm scared for my safety and my trash isn't getting collected. Uh, I'm going to go live in the suburbs or the exurbs uh, or somewhere else. And so you can kind of self-reinforcing kind of negative cycle. 
San Francisco felt like I was going down that path to some degree, but recently with AI kind of turned it around. And that's the, that's the history of San Francisco. It can remake itself pretty fast. Mm -hmm. It's pretty, you know, pretty nice place ultimately. Uh, and, uh, you know, they can figure that out. They'll figure it out. Uh, but some other cities may not, you know, they, they, we might see some, you know, some uh, large urban centers that really struggle here. I worry about my hometown of Philadelphia, for example, you know, it's a, same kind of dynamics playing out. So uh, cities then need to be very creative in how they address this uh, and be very proactive in addressing it. They can't just kind of stick their head in the sand and hope it goes away. Uh, they need to really think about this. But that's the risk. It's not a macroeconomic threat, but it's certainly because those people are going somewhere and wherever they're going, those are communities are going to be doing better and there's going to be more activity there. So, you know, it's net net, it's not a big macroeconomic event, but it's certainly... Uh, we want thriving cities for sure. And so we need to be, you know, wary of this. It's interesting. When I grew up, we didn't have thriving cities. So cities yeah. were the poster child of don't go to the core. And then we have the miracle of cores really coming back and renaissancing over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And then this struggle happening. Uh, the next podcast we have is going to be talking about San Francisco. So we're going to dive in for mm -hmm. a whole hour thinking about what's really going on here and what mm -hmm. are the solutions. One of the solutions, one of the issues are strong mayors. You need actually mayors who are CEOs who look at their cities as places that they have something they got to figure out how to, what to do with mm -hmm. versus mm -hmm. politics. And I know in San Francisco, we have a weak mayoral system. I don't know about Philly, but these yeah, I mean, are challenges, yeah, different deal. challenges. Everywhere. Challenges. Yeah. Yeah. But no, you make a lot of sense. I think I totally agree with you. Yeah, totally. Continuing kind of talking through different sectors, and we've talked about multifamily, we've talked about the overhang of new supply coming in. You said, and it's true, that most of that new supply is high-end stuff, where the multifamily that's needed is workforce and affordable. Those are two separate categories. Any comment on how the housing system delivers the stuff that's needed instead of the stuff that's not needed? Well, this would be helpful if lawmakers kind of kicked into gear. I mean, there's the LIHTC program, Low Income Housing Tax Credit, which is tried and true. There's problems with it, like any other uh, effort, to, uh, policy effort. But I think it's it's uh, worked quite well in delivering good quality uh, rental uh, homes to uh, folks with uh, low incomes. And that can be juiced up. And I, I think... Uh, there's different ways of making that uh, more of have greater scale and and more um, more be more effective. I also would think about uh, LIHTC for homeownership. Uh, so a LIHTC for single family builders that build entry level homes. That you know that's a little bit more difficult. In that you know the multifamily property that's affordable, you can ensure that that remains affordable for mm -hmm. a long period of time. That won't be you can't do that with single family home ownership, but that's you know that's increasingly where the problem is. It's uh, lessened on the affordable rental side, more on the on the on the affordable single family side. So that's another thing you could do. The neighborhood home tax credit, also a new tax credit, kind of helps with the uh, financing of rehabilitation in, of uh, old old housing stock, particularly in old urban centers and some rural areas, uh, I think would be very effective. You can see there's a theme here, tax credits, because, you know, there's that's one thing that Democrats and Republicans might be able to agree on, you know, some form of tax credit to try to address this issue. And, you know, there again, it's tried and true. Uh, you know, we know how to do this. Uh, yep. You got uh, a whole infrastructure for doing it. So I, I would take advantage of that. And 
I think that could reap benefit, you know, very, very quickly if, if uh, lawmakers uh, acted in that regard. But yeah. I think policy would be very important here. It's interesting. I was in the room, not a major player. I was sitting in the room when Section 8 was discontinued and the industry was trying to figure out what's next. And the overall strategy had to be tax credits because the belief was that that would be acceptable versus anything direct. It would be, there would be an inefficiency factor to it, but it might be stable. And in fact, yep. that's what came true. Yep, exactly. Yep. Let's stick for another couple minutes in the multifamily sector, but in between multifamily and single family, now since single family rental, that might fit the tax credit you talked about. And I just read the other day, there's a new law been proposed to outlaw SFR by institutional owners. I don't think mm. that law is going to go anywhere. But mm -hmm. that sector, subsector has attracted a lot of controversy in the popular press. Any comments about that? I mean, I think single family rental plays a role. I mean, it clearly it was very critical in getting us out of the financial crisis and the housing bust. The reason why the housing prices stopped falling back in 2011, 12 was because of those investors coming in, looking and seeing opportunities, stepping in and buying and put a floor under price. So they play a very important role. And I do think in some communities, it's it's a, an important part of the housing stock. They, I, I, you know, I do think they need to be regulated like all landlords and make sure that they're, you know, doing what's uh, appropriate for, uh, for uh, people who are renting. But, and then I'm also very hard pressed to how you would, what you would do to stop uh, single family rental investors from investing if they, if the economics are such that they want to invest without really doing real harm to the, to the housing market. It's still a pretty small share of the housing stock, certainly nationwide. You know, it's probably about 10%. In some communities, it's obviously higher than that in the right. South and the West, but still relatively small. So I, you know, I'm, I'm suspicious of, I understand the kind of the angst around it because, you know, the this means that these are rental properties and not for home ownership. So it hurts the effort to get uh, low-income households into, into housing. But I, I just don't see, uh, you know, a good way to address that. That's that that won't do more damage than than harm. And I don't see it as a as a really big deal at this point. Uh, you know, I think it's much more important to focus on making it easier for low income households to get into home ownership. Uh, and that means more supply. <clears throat> that means more efforts ultimately to support demand. You know, perhaps through some form of down payment support or you know uh, tax. Uh, a home, first-time homebuyer tax credit, mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of things. I don't think that makes any sense in the current environment because we don't have enough supply. But at some point down the road, that might make make a lot more sense. Let me let uh, me challenge that for a sec because the the last time we had a major push <clears throat> to expand the home ownership rate, particularly for lower income folks, and lower income families often are one or two paychecks away from a flat tire, right? Or if they're one flat tire away from not having money. That's a hard place to be a homeowner. So is there a natural place that kind of a natural net worth for which homeownership makes sense or doesn't make sense? And yeah, then, I'm not changing change guidelines. I mean, like even on down payment assistance, you could do it or support. You could do a, um, a 529 plan for uh, down payment. So that is for education, you save and you have a tax benefit because you save for the down payment. So right. you're actually supporting the financial health of the household and making it more likely that they'll be, that they could sustain homeownership. Uh, or it, California has a great uh, program where 
you get down payment support, but you share in the future appreciation of the home to pay back that support. Right. So those are, you know, those are examples of things that I think, you know, put homeowners in a, in an advantageous place and you're not putting people who can't afford those homes in homes. That's the worst thing you want to do because nothing is worse than getting a person in a home and then they lose the home. It costs everybody, including right. the homeowner, but the homeowner lost their home. So I'm not saying lower credit standards there, but there are ways to support this, uh, you know, and help out. Uh, and, but again, in the near term, next foreseeable two, three, four years is it's really gotta be most, it's gotta be about supply because mm-hmm. if you, if you provide support to demand and there's no supply, all that happens is it juices up rents and prices and, no one's better off for it, except for the homeowners right. who gener- benefited from the higher prices. All true. I have a couple of future questions for you. Yeah. So one future question is uh, complying with, that sounds like a negative word, dealing with climate change within the commercial real estate industry and in our economy generally is going to be a cost. In CRE, it's going to be a big cost, particularly in cities that are now meaningfully regulating this. Bearing that cost is going to be tough and a challenge, but got to be done. Any comment on what that means over the next 20 years in terms of values and how the economy deals with that? Yeah, I mean, it it, it has to be addressed because insurance companies are going to require that it be, you're going to pay, you're going to pay, you're going to pay one way or the other. So uh, climate has to be dealt with and it is a cost. And I do think both for CRE and single family, you know, in, in, uh, mm-hmm. I, I have a home in uh, Florida and my insurance rates have risen by a third over the past three years. And a lot of that is climate risk, you know, the, all the storms have been blowing through. So uh, it's going to have an impact. Interestingly enough, uh, at least in the single family market, I haven't been able to connect the dots between insurance, climate insurance and prices, but I'm sure that's coming. It's mm-hmm. going to come and it's already happening in CRE. So uh, there, there's no way around it. It's just going to add to our costs. We, we're going to have to deal with it, and it's going to be embedded in, you know, uh, the rents that we all pay and and, and uh, you know, the prices that we pay. Everything's going to be affected by it going forward for sure. Mm-hmm. And also, if we think about the workforce, which is where we started the conversation <laughs> um, on your last podcast, you talked about people 55 plus. Now, 55 plus is a wide range, but if we think 55 to 70, with lifespans changing. And AI, which is counter to what I'm going to ask the question about, is are people going to work longer? And what does that mean for employment, the workforce, and the overall economy? Uh, well, so it'd be interesting since the pandemic, uh, the, the participation rate fell for 55 plus, you know, fell, and it has not recovered. It's been flat as a pancake. Right. Participation rates across all the other age groups have rebounded and are now above pre-pandemic. As time goes by here, it feels increasingly like like it's not coming back. Uh, you know, I, I think that suggests that people are wealthy enough that they don't need to come back. I mean, stock prices are up, housing values are up. They got a lot of cash in the bank from what they saved during the pandemic, and they're they're fine. Uh, so uh, it, that may change. You know, maybe it'll start to come up as people say, "Hey, you know, I don't have the amount of savings I need, or I I don't I need." to work. I, I don't like the lifestyle of being in retirement, but so far that hasn't happened. Uh, so uh, increasingly it looks like uh, people feel comfortable with their financial situation and are coming back. It's interesting. A, is work something you do want to do or don't want to do? Is it optional? What's that mean for meaning in life? And then also with lifespans changing, that could be, you know, and I've read about, you know, okay, you're going to have a 40 year retirement 
people plan to 20 year retirement, both for social security and that whole subject, but also for what it means for someone's lifestyle and meaning in their later years. Yeah, no. Uh, so we'll have to see how that plays out. But, you know, right now it looks like people are feeling pretty comfortable with their financial situation. Cool. We'll see. Which brings us to what's always the last question on Leading Voices, yeah. which is your advice for a young person coming into the economy generally or specifically coming into the real estate business? Uh, well, I guess it uh, should be the same advice to everyone coming into any profession. <laughs> that would be true. I think the key is enjoying what you do. It's this, called, this is hackneyed, but I think it's just absolutely true. If you enjoy what you do, you're going to work at it harder, be more per persistent at it. You're going to get more positive feedback and you get into that kind of virtual feedback cycle that's key to success. So find something you like and then stick with it and uh, it'll you know, pay dividends, uh, you know, over the long run. Yeah. You know, Mark, it's interesting having listened to your podcast over the weekend, yeah. talking to you now, uh -huh. what I experienced hearing you on your podcast is that you love what you do and that your conversations with people, both your team and then the guests on your show is bringing new data into this mind that's accumulating all this stuff and <laughs> synergizing all this information for wisdom. Well, I think you pegged me pretty well. <laughs> I, I don't have any hobbies. I'm very boring. The one thing I do is economics. And, you know, that uh, if, if we're talking economics, I'm golden. If we're talking anything else, I got a problem. So very, very unidimensional kind of guy. But uh, I love economics. And, you know, it's uh, been a very good profession for me. And I think, again, you know, when I got into economics, when I went to Econ 101 back in the 80s, my dad goes economics because you know, he's an he's an engineer. You know mm -hmm. what the, what the heck are you going to do with that, son? Yeah, I can't see any future for that. And I go, Dad, don't worry about it. Uh, it's all going to work out, and you know it did. <laughs> so we're it, good. <laughs> it did, and I'm happy you yeah, did because yeah. you contribute a lot to our discussion. So it's great to have you there, and thank you for being on our show. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate the opportunity. You're very kind, and I really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Please remember, if you're enjoying Leading Voices, to share an episode with a friend or get them to subscribe. If they're podcast wary and not sure how to find and subscribe on their phone, go ahead and take their phone in your hand and subscribe for them. And add another few of your favorite podcasts to their list to get them started. They'll thank you for it. You can also find episodes of the show on our website, which you can find at zrgpartners.com slash leadingvoices. And if you have comments or discussion about this episode or leading voices in general, or if you're seeking help in real estate human capital solutions, recruiting or consulting especially, please contact me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. Thanks for being a listener to Leading Voices.